It is so good to see you this morning. We are about as full as we can be uh, in this time, and so that is exciting uh, to see. Um, Ernie is right. We have so much to be thankful for, and, and this is one of those rare occasions where social media has done a good thing, is I have this little Facebook memory of, well, it was yesterday, one year ago, and there was like 18 inches of snow, and then we look out and we see this. So if you're visiting, I don't know if this is normal today, but it's beautiful. And it's uh, something to be very, very thankful for. I was reminded that Norquay opened on the 30th last year for skiing of October. And Shayla and I ripped up there to see it yesterday. And there's no snow even at the top of that thing. So, you know, for better or worse. But I'm thankful that the snow is holding off because, you know, six months of it's enough for me. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> for today, we'll be thankful. Tomorrow we will be thankful for snow. If you want to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we started a, a, new, uh, a new topic in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the last block of teaching, um, and it's focused all on the resurrection. It's the second longest chapter in the New Testament. And, and so to, to Paul, this is very, very important, this idea. And, and so we started this last week talking in this first 12 verses of 15 just about the resurrection, about the centrality it has to the gospel message and how important it is that we uh, believers in Christ understand that there is a resurrection. And, and again, as we talked last week, um, there are those who are hurting right now. There are those who are uh, suffer, uh, grieving the loss of a loved one. And this is the kind of text that we should go to in those moments where that we are reminded that there is a resurrection from the dead, that we will be back united together again. And these are God's words, not ours. This is not some kind of hope that we have, but a certainty that we know because God has spoken this to be true. And so last week we talked about it in theory. This week, Paul's going to deal with, uh, we're going to read verses 12 to 34, and Paul's going to deal with some very specific issues of, if you believe this, well, here's some of the implications of that. And what Paul's really doing is, is he's calling them out and saying, you clearly have not thought all this through. There were those in the church in Corinth that were denying the resurrection. Not, not necessarily that Jesus rose from the dead, but that we would rise from the dead. But even in the text, you'll see that, that Paul's making the assumption here that there are some even there that say Christ died for our sins uh, on the cross, and so that's wonderful, but, but the resurrection is not a thing. And to Paul, it's super, super important. So I want to ask you this question before we read, and as we start this morning, and, and I'll explain why in a few moments, but if somebody came up to you and said, how how important is the, is the theological doctrine of resurrection? How important is that to your faith? How central is that to your understanding of salvation in general? Not just like some kind of obscure little doctrine about something that isn't really important, but how central is it to your understanding of salvation? I just want you to mull that through uh, as we begin to read, and, and I'll explain to you why I ask that question in a few moments. So let's start in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We're going to deal with that last paragraph at the end because there's some interesting stuff there that maybe you haven't thought of in a long time or perhaps you've never even uh, read in Scripture. And so we're going to talk about that. But before we get there, we want to deal with Paul's uh, passion as as he starts talking about the resurrection. And one of the things that I do when I preach is try and read the passage over and over and over through the course of those few days leading up to it. And, and one of the things that I saw this time, every time I read it, it got more intense in my mind as I was listening, whether it was listening audibly to it being uh, read to me or whether I was reading it, is it just kind of seeing Paul get more and more aggressive and more, if you believe this, then you have to believe this and you can't believe that, based, this is my paraphrase, because that's stupid. He doesn't say that. But that's kind of the gist of what you're seeing as he gets through this. Uh, commentator Leon Morris sums up this whole section by saying this, if dead men don't rise, then Christ did not rise. If Christ did not rise, the Christian faith is empty. The objectors are striking at the very heart of the faith. I don't know if you thought of it that way when you think about the resurrection being the very heart of our faith. I think often we think of it as Jesus dying on the cross as the heart of our faith, and then the resurrection is the fulfillment of that, but, or the completion of that, I should say. But to Paul here, this is so, so central. And so he starts by writing seven if statements, right? If you believe this, well, then you have to believe this too. In other words, what Paul's trying to do, and this is important for our time as well, because we live in a time where in Christian circles, we're starting to throw out parts of the Bible that we don't really like or that we don't understand. And so we believe this chunk of it, but we don't believe this chunk of it. But the only unfortunate part is that Jesus spoke to the authority of this much as much as he did as this. 
So how can we throw that, or keep this, but throw that out? And, and so Paul's dealing with this inconsistent logic that exists with the Corinthians, and he's saying, you heard the gospel, you responded to the gospel, you know that Jesus is who he claimed he was, and yet now you're denying some of the very things in which we testify to you have happened and are central. And so Paul is genuinely concerned, right? You can see that at the end. Some of you have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame, is can we worship a God that we have no knowledge of? Certainly not. We have to learn about who he is, and how do we do that? Well, in our time, we have the book right in front of us that we can read, that we can study, that we can learn. Here is who God is. Here's how he's revealed himself to us. Here are the things that are central and core to my belief and my faith. Here are the things that I cannot compromise on. And one of these is the resurrection. Since the very beginning of the church, all through the New Testament, Christ had been proclaimed as risen from the dead. That's just a fact. That's just something that you read through the Bible. That's not some one-time occurrence. That's something that just goes on through it. And Paul actually said last week that all the apostles bore witness to that, and all of them saw the risen Jesus themselves. And so this is just, I can't overstate how important this is. And so he begins with saying things like this. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, well, then our preaching is useless. It's, it's irrelevant. If Christ uh, didn't rise from the dead, then your faith is in vain. It has no meaning. Let me paraphrase it this way. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. You could be right about all kinds of other facts. And Paul talks about knowing Christ in another place in Scripture with this sense of it's not about knowing facts about him. It's not Bible trivia. It's not let's sit down and let's go, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that, so that means we're real close with Jesus. Right? I could say that about all kinds of people. I could tell you, Ernie could probably tell you, a lot of places hockey players were born what team they played for, how many goals they scored, all these things. But if he phoned them up and was like, hey, Wayne, how you doing? I know everything about you. All Wayne would do is call 911 and go, I got a stalker. Right? Like that's, that's not a relationship. Maybe you do have a relationship with Wayne Gretzky. I don't know. You can brag about that one later if you do. But the, the point being simple here is just knowing facts, obscure things about Jesus is not the point. It's about learning who he was and, and as Paul says, as sharing in his suffering, sharing in his resurrection. And so these are essential aspects of our faith. I've said this many times over, especially the last year, but the last three years, is that we are ambassadors of Christ. And so how we live, how we represent Christ is vitally important. And the scriptures speak to that over and over again. And so I don't want to spend more time there except to remind us that how we represent Christ is deeply impacting to the world around us. And so if we misrepresent Christ, as Paul says here, is if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we'll be found, or we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that he did raise from the dead. So Paul says, we, you cannot deny this. Because all the apostles saw him personally. And as we looked at last week, over 500 other people, Jesus appeared to and showed himself because it was important to God to say, look, it's not as though Christ raised from the dead and then didn't want to tell anybody that he had conquered death. It was a central part of the message of the gospel. 
You have hope because Christ is raised from the dead. Paul continues and, and takes it even further. If the dead are not raised in general, not even Christ has been raised. You can't deny that Christ is raised because if you do, your faith is futile. And he actually goes even further and says, you are still in your sins. This is hugely important that we consider this. According to what Paul says here in Scripture, right, which we believe to be the inspired word of God, is if Christ did not raise, if Christ was not if he did not rise from the dead, your sins are not forgiven. That's what it says. Right? And and at first read, at first glance, you might go, hang on, no, 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 that's not true because he died on the cross for our sins. But I think we dichotomize this idea of death and resurrection as two different things when to God's plan of salvation they are one tied together. And you cannot have one without the other. And so Paul says, you're still in your sins. And not only that, then, then that means all who have fallen asleep in Christ uh, they, that have perished, they're all done. That's it. There's nothing left. Nothing more for them. In fact, he ends this paragraph by saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That is a pretty strong statement, isn't it? I think for us to really grasp what Paul is saying is we have to step back a little bit from our unique culture that we live in. Because often we think of, of our Christianity as this sense of it gives us meaning and hope and purpose in this life. And that's true. Certainly, hope in Christ gives you purpose and meaning for the job that you have and the family that you have and the people that you interact with and your coworkers, all those things. That's, that's absolutely true. But that's probably the smallest part of it in the grand scheme of things when we think about eternity. When you think back to a church like Corinth, or when Peter is writing to the elect exiles who were under immense persecution, is if they only had hope in this life, that their life had meaning and purpose, and yet they were losing their family, their friends, their homes, they were being persecuted to the point of death. If they only had hope in this life then, then it's, it's worthless. Paul says then you should pity Christians above everyone else on the earth, because not only are they not only would they be believing something that isn't true, it isn't even helpful to them. And so in our time, we can kind of read that and look at it, and we interpret it with like, well, yeah, it gives us hope and meaning and purpose for here, but we've, we've become so obsessed with the world that we've forgotten about heaven. We're so consumed with stuff, with things, with careers, with tasks at hand, that we've forgotten that in the grand scheme of things, this one thing that I'm doing right now is so insignificant compared to eternity. Now that shouldn't take you to the place of going, well, everything that you do now is insignificant, so don't worry about it. That's an extreme view of that. What we're trying to get us to see is that this world is not all that there is. And so if we live only for this world, then we lose sight of everything that's to come. And I just want to say it this way, as, as kindly as I can. This world is a pretty cool place, but if we think it compares to heaven in any one, if, if we think it compares at all to heaven, then we misunderstand how beautiful heaven is and how wonderful God is. And we've really elevated something that has a timeline. This world is going to end. Richard Pratt, 
It says it this way, not only would they receive no benefit from their religion, they would also forfeit the pleasures their brief life on earth offered. How does that proclaim anything to the world around us? The fact that all the disciples except for John were martyred for their Did it work? Oh, good. Get ready. You know a test is coming now. Because I don't know what I just said. Let's just, let's just move on with the notes then, shall we? <laughs> According to Paul, the resurrection of the dead wasn't that our belief in the gospel, sorry, if it wasn't true, then our belief in the gospel is useless, is useless and everyone should pity us. But the simple truth is I have hope that nobody can take away. And so if somebody takes my life, according to Paul, to live as Christ but to die is what? It wouldn't be gain if there was no resurrection. It would just be we're done then. But there's hope in the resurrection. So Paul then, all these ifs. If this, then this. If this, then this. But now he clarifies. But in fact, Christ has been There is no question about this. It's a misunderstanding of some of the people in Corinth and perhaps some people in our current Christian culture, perhaps some even here this morning. And so Paul is showing us that our understanding of the resurrection is central to our understanding of the gospel. And so back to the question that I asked is if we think, can you be a Christian but deny the resurrection? Well, Paul says emphatically, no, you cannot. And so if we think, well, it's not that central, we're actually competing with the word of God. And we're disagreeing with it. And so this is why theology is so important. In today's world, it's like this really poor word, theology or doctrine. We don't like it. It's all academic. Let's throw it out. In fact, there's this big movement, uh, and it's got some validity to it in theory, except it's taken way too far, as it's called deconstructionism. Right, where we deconstruct our faith, get rid of everything that we know, and just start at the very basics. And in theory, that sounds good, but in doing that so often, we throw out so much of what is true in the Bible, and we start to listen to what culture is teaching us of true is, or what is true now. But if it was true then, it's true now. That's the way truth works. It's truth is always true. And so for us, theology, doctrine, these are not bad words. These are the ways in which God shows us, here is who I am. And here is how you can get to know me. And so there aren't these issues of, well, we can deny the resurrection. As long as we believe in Jesus, we can deny the resurrection. And Paul says, no, then you don't even understand who Jesus is. And you've missed the whole point. Now, I don't want to make it sound as though you have to believe, you know, 675 different aspects of theology. There's lots of room to agree to disagree on things that aren't as central as this. And that's okay if we don't agree on all things. But when we read through Scripture and we read, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then nobody is raised from the dead. If it's that strong and we go, oh, well, there is no resurrection, then we're in direct contrast with the Word of God. 
This is why we study it. This is why we go book by book, verse by verse, reading through so that we get to places where we have to consider what does this mean? So he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this idea of first fruits is a, is a constant theme all through scripture. Here's, here's what the definition, defini- oh, I can't talk now. We got rattled, people. First fruits refer to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop. Therefore, Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. Now, this isn't a unique thing in Corinthians. Uh, Romans 5, 12 to 19, you can write this down because we're just going to read one verse from it. But Romans 5, 12 to 19, Paul goes through the same argument with those in the church at Rome trying to deal with this. And the section is called Death in Adam, Life in Christ. And his whole point here is, is that Adam, through his sin, brought death to everyone. That then now when we are born, we are born with that same sin nature and we already stand guilty. And sometimes we lose sight of just how bad that news is. And we think, well, I'm not so bad. But Paul says, no, in fact, when you were, by the time you were born, Adam's sin is already present within you. That nature is there. And so you already stand guilty. But then the contrasting argument comes in that just in the same way that one deed from Adam impacted all of humanity, in the same way one deed that Christ performed impacts all of humanity as well. Yes, the bad news of that is bad, but the good news becomes even greater. So this is 5.19 of Romans. It says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That is great, great news. And so Paul's saying in that same, in that same way, Yes, Adam came, and so death comes in, and now there is this final end if you don't believe in Christ. But if you do, he's conquered death. And, and then he quotes Psalm 110, and he talks about this idea of subjection. And, and not everything, actually Psalm 110 is the, the most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. Over and over we're reminded of this because we, at this present time, and them at that time, death has been conquered, Christ has been raised from the dead, but are all things in subjection to Christ yet? No, there's still anarchy. There is still things that are not in complete rule under Christ yet. And so that's why Paul says, here's here's the order of it. First, Christ rises from the dead. Then, when he comes back, those of us who have died already, we will re-raise with him. And then, he will put all things in subjection under him. He will rule everything. There will be nothing left outside of the scope of Christ's rule. Revelation 21.4 says it this way. He will wipe away every tear tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's where our hope is, isn't it? The promise that the hurt that I have today, the pain that I feel, the suffering, the grief, whatever it is, that all of those things will be over when Christ comes to rule. Nothing will stand against him. And so all of the difficulties, whatever that might be for you this morning, whether that's you have a heavy heart because you have a family that you know that has lost a child, 
whether that means that you have just been told that you have cancer, whether that means fill in the blank with anything else, any hurt, any pain, anything that can overwhelm you, Christ will rule over all of those things. That is the greatest hope that, that we can have. And, and that's why Paul says, if it's only in this life, then we're to be pitied because this life is not very good, actually, compared to what's coming. And so we praise the Lord for that. Then there's this strange uh, paragraph at the end. And so I want to deal with this because I'd be remiss if we didn't deal with this because it's a strange thing. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Anybody know anything about that? In fact, sometimes when you read something like that, you may be like, that isn't in Scripture anywhere. And you're right. This is the only time this idea is talked about in Scripture. In fact, according to church history, there's so much confusion here because what Paul seems to be referencing is a practice that only the people in Corinth at this time did, but that has never been done since. And so when I tried to study through this and read pages and pages and pages of things to try and explain, how, how am I going to explain this to you? I don't really have a very good answer, except for this. Here's the two predominant views. Either people in Corinth were getting baptized on behalf of people who hadn't had the chance at being baptized before they died, or Paul was talking about the dead in the sense the bodies of living Christians are subject to death and decay, and so they are baptized on behalf of their dying bodies. Not really sure which one holds more water, to be honest. However, what I think Paul is doing and why he's talking about this is because he's trapping them in their own logic. I don't think he's condoning what's happening here. He's simply saying, if there is no resurrection, then the very practices that you're doing right now don't make any sense anyway. So why are you doing it? Right? We say this all the time at home, and I'm sure you've said this to your kids over and over and over, is we do what we believe, right? The things that we do are because we have belief in them. So the way that we act is because we believe something is going to happen because cause and effect. And so Paul going, okay, you, don't, you deny the resurrection of the dead, which makes no sense scripturally, which makes no sense biblically, and he goes through that and he says, no, see, Christ is going to raise from the dead, and, and even still, why would you do this practice if you didn't believe this anyway? He's just catching them in their own faulty logic. I'm certain that's what's going on. Whether it was option A or option B, that I can't tell you. And then he takes it further. Uh, why are we in danger every hour? Now again, we don't understand that in this part of the world. But there are those in the world who, if they meet Sunday morning, know that that might be their last time they ever meet. That if they have a Bible on them when they're searched by police, that they could be thrown in prison or even killed. There are people all over the world right now that to confess Jesus Christ as Lord literally means that could be their last breath of what they do. And that's what Paul's saying. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are we in danger in every hour? But he says this, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Because of the boldness that he has in the truth of the resurrection, there is nothing that will stop Paul. Because I know that all you can do is take my life. And in fact, Paul views that as a promotion. 
So go ahead, do whatever you want to me, and I will put myself in danger as much as I have to because the message of the gospel is worth it. And so for Paul, this is so, so central. What what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then he gives us two quick warnings. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Maybe you haven't heard it said that way, but I think all of us have had our parents say that to us at one time or another, haven't they? Are you sure you want to be hanging out with those people? You sure you want to be making those decisions? Right? And, And so now we have this battle constantly, right? Is we are in the world and we are in the world because God has purpose for us. So we are a light, we are an ambassador for Christ, but to do that means we have to be intentional and if we shrink back and we just hang out with the crowd and do what they do and act like they do, then we're not doing the thing that we're called to do. And Paul says if you do that, you're, you're going to get corrupted. You're going to lose sight of what's important. You're going to lose sight of how central Christian living is to how, to, to how you act in everyday life. And so he warns us. And so I want to warn you in the same way. This isn't saying don't hang out with people who are non-believers. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying hold fast that you are not made for this world. So represent Christ well. Give them hope. Give them purpose. Love them and show them who Jesus is. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. In other words, he's trying to say this. You've confessed the gospel, Corinthians. You've said that Jesus is Lord, but you're not living that way. So wake up. Don't act the way that you are anymore because it goes against what Scripture says. This is where, again, doctrine and theology become so important for us. Because if we claim to know Christ, but we go against what Scripture says, we don't know Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a serious warning, isn't it? So for us to see is we can't claim to know God and then not actually know who he is. We want to study the Bible. Why? Because we want to know who God is. Not what I think God should be. And, and I've heard many people say this lately, is, is I couldn't worship a God who, and then they fill in the blank with something that they don't like about Scripture. Really all that's saying is I couldn't worship a God who disagrees with me. That's a pretty arrogant statement to make, isn't it? If there is a God who has created us out of nothing, then doesn't he have the only right to do whatever he says is true and right and just. And so we submit to him in all areas, that which we don't understand and that which we can understand as we study through Scripture because we say, I want to represent Christ well in whatever I do, in whatever my job is, in in whoever the people that I interact with each day is I want them to know there is a difference within me because I'm not living for this world because this world will pass away. We probably as a North American church don't think about the resurrection as often as we should. Probably because we have a relatively comfortable life. 
but to those in Scripture who are losing their family, who are losing their friends, who are losing their home, who are being threatened with death, all of those things only do one thing. They tie them closer to Jesus because they recognize that there's nothing here to offer me compared to what's to come. And so may we think more about the resurrection. May we not only think about it when we go through pain and hurt or when somebody we know passes away, though we should think about it in those moments, but may we also remind ourselves over and over and over that even when life is really good, even when I think that all my problems are are not real important and, and overall my life is going so good as may we think, but the resurrection will change how I live today. It'll give me purpose far greater than just to be comfortable. To have a big bank account, to have a big house, to have a big car, whatever it might be. No, the resurrection of Jesus gives me hope that no matter what I lose here, it does not matter because I will gain far more than I could ever lose. That's the truth of the gospel. As I said last week, may we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Let's pray. God, we are so in awe of the truth of the resurrection. God, for us to consider, for us to think that our lives here and now, while they have purpose and while they have meaning because we are your ambassadors, they cannot compare with the life that's to come. We thank you that you have promised. In scripture, we have read these words this morning, We will rise again. We will be with you for eternity. And so God, may that change our perspective. May the things that we think are so important right now, may they get a proper place of how important they are. God, may we recognize this is just just a moment but that one day we are promised we will have no more tears, no more hurt, no more pain, only beauty as we worship you. And so God, we thank you for that promise. We eagerly await that day, but God, we also pray for those around the world who are clinging so tightly to that hope because they have nothing on this earth. God, we pray for them. Would you strengthen their faith in you? Would you give them the perseverance they need to face the obstacles that they face that we know nothing about? As we hear stories of people sacrificing their life for their faith, would that remind us of the beauty of Jesus? Would it challenge our hearts and would we grow more deeply in love with you, knowing that this world has nothing to compare? May we view our lives the same way that Paul viewed. To live is Christ and to die is gain. God, thank you for the hope that you give us that nobody can take away. We celebrate in that this morning. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Again, please feel free to stick around and visit. And if you have any questions, you can ask someone who thinks or someone who looks like they think they know what they're talking about. They'll probably direct you right. 
And if you were visiting, it is our pleasure to have you here. You can come find us if you have any questions about the church or the community or anything else. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you again.